Support for Talking Heart on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Dr. Brandon Brame Fortune, the former and recently retired Chief Curator Emerita of the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., whose upcoming virtual talk about portraiture given in conjunction with the Figgy Art Museum's exhibition For America will be held this Thursday, February 25th. Welcome, Dr. Fortune. Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. Now, you recently retired from the prestigious National Portrait Gallery after a long career. Why do you think portraits fascinate us so much? Well, you know, our our director at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery would say, portraits can change the world. Um, and they and they can. It's it's important, I think, to to look at a portrait as uh, a way into another person, a kind of access that we don't usually get in our day to day interaction. To be able to actually stare at an image of another person is is pretty unusual. But portraits give us access; they're a portal to a biography to another life. And for that reason, they're fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, with self-portraits in particular, I think it's so much about how we perceive ourselves or how do we want others to think of us. And there, there's a psychological difference between um, performing a, or creating a self-portrait versus commissioning a portrait that someone else makes of you. Oh, absolutely. You know, at the at the portrait gallery, our mission is to look at the impact that people have had and have had and are still having on our history through portraits. Self-portraits are particularly fascinating because unlike a portrait that was commissioned by someone who had the means to afford, let's say, a painted portrait, the person who is paying for it, and then there's the artist, and then the person, and the artist is supposed to make that person look fabulous in one way or another, or, you know, depict all of their um, their good deeds, a self-portrait is can be much more revealing. Now, we don't know what the artist is giving us. They may be creating an absolute fiction, but they appear to be fascinating windows into a creative soul, and I think that makes them particularly interesting. What will you be discussing in your upcoming lecture on Thursday? You know, I was so excited to be asked to do this lecture because the National Academy of Design is an artist's organization that has existed for almost 200 years. And from nearly the beginning of their history, they asked members who were tended to be white men for many decades, but that changed in the 20th century. uh, They asked their members not only to give the institution an example of their work, but also a portrait of themselves, either by a friend or another artist or a self-portrait. For that reason, they have so many self-portraits in their collection, and that is one of the important parts of this exhibition that's traveling and is going to be at the Figgy. Um, The Portrait Gallery in Washington 
also has a very large collection of self-portraits. So there was a point of connection there that I loved because, of course, we are are uh, examining the the history of the lives of those artists whose self-portraits are part of our collection. So it's a broader scope in a way, um, but they're, they're points of comparison that I love. Mm-hmm. I love the way we can learn about history also by examining and, and looking very carefully at these, at these people for, who may be contemporary, but may have lived centuries ago. Um, and I think we can see something of ourselves and them all. Um, Absolutely. You know, for artists, for many, many years, a self-portrait would either be a simple representation of the person's sort of head and shoulders, but with self-portraits, you often find them with the tools of their trade, with their palettes and brushes. Um, and that continues even in some of the most ass- assertive of contemporary, modern and contemporary portraits. Um, but but there are always subtle changes over time. And so because artists are, are part of their time, yes, you can trace, trace our history through these portraits. And I'm particularly thinking of a wonderful portrait in the Figgy show of Louisa Mathis-Strotter, who was of Scandinavian heritage, but worked in this country in the middle years of the 20th century. And it's a big painting showing her full length, um, wearing trousers with her hair pulled back, You know, she is as assertive as she can be. And in my lecture, I'm going to compare this this portrait, which I've just really come across and learned about, with one of the icons of the National Portrait Gallery, a nude self-portrait of uh, Alice Neal done when she was 80. And so, you know, there are just amazing self-portraits that you you wouldn't expect that, Mm -hmm. that you find. There are quite a few self-portraits painted by women that are in the Formerick exhibit where they do show their self-confidence and their assertiveness, like you'd mentioned, which is a which is a great uh, which is a great quality, especially because of the gallery gap that exists, and because that uh, many women were not invited into the academy until later on. Exactly. That's absolutely true. I'll be looking at a self-portrait of Cecilia Bow, who joined the Academy in the very late 19th century. But um, And this is also the case for people of color as well. Henry Osawa Tanner didn't join the Academy until, I think, early 20th century. And then there wasn't another portrait of an African-American um, in their collection and another artist admitted to the Academy until the 1960s with Huey Lee Smith. So um, it was an elite white institution, but but things changed. And the curators of this show have really brought together some wonderful pieces. I'm going to be looking in my talk at a self-portrait of a woman member of the Academy, Ellen Emmett Rand from the eight, from the 1920s and comparing it to one of my favorite portraits in the Portrait Gallery collection, a uh, portrait of Lucy Mae Stanton, who in my mind, as I imagine her, um, was a, a suffragist, um, just the most assertive woman, but who could really paint. It's a watercolor with a beautiful blues. And I love putting it next to that the Academy's portrait of Ellen Emmett Rand. I've been finding some wonderful juxtapositions and looking forward to talking about them. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you spent much of your career at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., which is part of the Smithsonian. When was the National Portrait Gallery founded, and what were the reasons behind its creation? You know, the Portrait Gallery is a relatively young museum. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary, and we were founded by Congress, by an act of Congress in 1962, to examine the role of people who had an impact and were continuing to have an impact on our history through portraits. Um, It was a relatively conservative institution when it opened in the late 1960s and 1968 um, and didn't even collect photographs until 1976. But around 2000, the institution really took a look at itself and our director at the time decided that we needed to engage with contemporary life. And since that time, we've accepted contemporary uh, people into the collection. We've started commissioning portraits of people who we need to include in the museum. Um, we've just been commissioning portraits of women in science, for instance. So the, the museum has been changing over time. Hmm. When When people think about portraits, at least for me, I think about uh, a painted portrait, but there are, are many different types of mediums that are used and on display at the National Portrait Gallery. Is that correct? That is correct, indeed. Um, certainly, in the 18th century, portraiture, painted portraiture, was a very elite art, and only a very few people could afford to have them. But with the invention of photography in the 19th century, And moving into the 20th and 21st century, we are collecting portraits in so many mediums, photographs, prints, um, video, moving image work. And actually, recently, one of our curators established a performance art series Mm -hmm. to really address um, absence in our collection. And it's been very successful. Hmm. Well, you'd mentioned... You know, photography and and in this digital age, selfies have become a, a common means of self-expression. How do you see selfies? How how do they differ from a self-portrait? And what do you make of our society's recent preoccupation with them? Well, selfies are everywhere, aren't they? I mean, everyone <laughs> who engages with social media is making self-portraits or portraits of others all the time. And actually, I was thinking about that a lot back in 2018 when I was creating a show of self-portraits for the National Portrait Gallery. Because when you look, when one looks at a self-portrait by an artist, I think one is invited to slow down and contemplate and think about why that person is creating this image Whereas selfies are are quick, almost throwaway images that we're constantly changing and amending. Um, it's they're tracking our fast paced lives, whereas artists are asking us to stop and slow down. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting reflection because everything now seems to be so ephemeral. You know we. We see images so quickly, we see them and discard them, and, and selfies seem to me a bit like that. But um, for, uh, for many people, uh, selfies 
become, in a sense, a way to try to immortalize themselves. <laughs> not not in the same way as a careful painting, but um, but there's there's a little bit of overlap, which I think is really curious. There may be, and in fact, you know, they're certainly here to stay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we will be looking at selfies as a form of art. I'm sure in the future. Um, absolutely. I do think that self-portraits often, and maybe selfies do this too, open us up to another person's presence in a really interesting way. When you're standing and looking at a photograph or a painting of an artist, that artist intends for you to be there. That self-portrait was created for an audience, and it's an opportunity to slow down and think about that person's life and your presence. Sometimes you're in the presence of someone who is long dead and yet they live on for you in that image. So I don't know if selfies will do that for us. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I'm guessing probably not, but you know, there's also this question of, of, of illusion versus reality and what we want people to see in us or how we want to be versus how we truly are. I think that that elusive inner life is something that very few people ever reveal. Um, Self-portraits are also fascinating because you can see all the different ways that they, that these artists construct their selves. They're probably slightly fictive selves for us to see. Um, I think inner life is something we don't always reveal. Mm -hmm. Is there a contemporary portrait or an artist working in portraiture right now that you would like to introduce us to that the listener might not know about? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll talk about a portrait that the um, museum commissioned just recently and it was a portrait of Julie Packard, who is the founder of the Monterey Bay Aquarium in Monterey, California. And she was very interested in, in art and in artists. And we asked her about a number of different artists for her portrait, but she chose a New York-based artist, Hope Gangloff, whose work is very expressive, very colorful. And Hope went to California and spent a week with Julian at the aquarium and just um, created a portrait full of fish <laughs> and a wonderful likeness of Julie Packard as well, citing her within the aquarium. Um, and I think that Hope's work is just fantastic. And although she did portraits in the past, I think this was a was a, a moment in her career that that made a difference. So. Is that on display currently at the National Portrait Gallery? Well, the museum is closed, mm-hmm. um, but it, it had been on display until mm-hmm. just recently. Mm-hmm. One day. One day we'll read it. Re- I'm, re- I'm sure it can be found on the website. <laughs> well, let's talk about yourself for a bit. What was your educational background, and, and how did your career path ultimately bring you to the National Portrait Gallery in, in Washington, D.C.? Well, I'm originally from the South, from North Carolina, and I had been educated in in the South and decided to move to Washington, D.C. in 1984 because I was hoping and praying to 
be awarded a fellowship from the Smithsonian Institution to work on my dissertation. That happened. I was able to have a desk at the National Portrait Gallery, and I dug in. <laughs> I never left. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so the, and, and you just recently years. retired last summer, I believe. Yes, yes. I worked for over 30 years at the museum, um, and for the last nine years as chief curator, it's certainly a museum that's close to my heart. Mm-hmm. I love the collection. Well, persistence pays off, it, it seems. That's true. Over the course of your career, you've also curated a multitude of exhibitions. There are, are really too many to discuss individually, but would you highlight at least one of those projects that was meaningful to you in particular? Sure. Um, I mean, I think it, it's appropriate to talk about the, the next to last exhibition that I did at the museum it was called Eye to Eye, E-Y-E. I, and it was a show of self-portraits. I curated it in 2018 as part of the celebration of the museum's 50th anniversary. We felt that it was important to essentially thank all the artists who made the portraits, who made our museum possible. And that exhibition was um, on view at the museum in 2018 and 19, but a traveling version is actually still on the road. It's currently in Corpus Christi, Texas. Huh. Well, that's uh, that's quite an accomplishment. Then I um, I would love to see that at some point. I, I also was reading and reading about you. Was interested in your um, your background knowledge about Elaine de Kooning and the book that you published on her. That was such an interesting exhibition to do. Elaine de Kooning was an, an underappreciated artist, and I certainly hope that. She's been getting a lot more attention, not only from our exhibition, which was um, on view in 2015, but uh, there's been a lot more attention paid to most of the women involved with abstract expressionism. And as Elaine de Kooning did so many portraits during her career, as well as abstract work, we wanted to focus on on her. And we have a number of her works in our collection, including our portrait of John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious, after your long career studying portraiture, how would you create your own self-portrait if you were to do so? Oh, my goodness. I think I'd paint myself in a mask and sunglasses. (laughs) (laughs) One can certainly hide during COVID. (laughs) Yes, I think our COVID portraits would all be a little little unusual, wouldn't they? (laughs) Long hair in in our sweatpants. Long gray hair in my (laughs) face. (laughs) Well, Dr. Brandon Bream Fortune, thank you so much for talking today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Carolyn. Don't miss the upcoming virtual lecture by Dr. Fortune, American Artists Self-Portraits, Then and Now, this Thursday, February 25th, from 5 to 6 p.m. You can register online at figgyartmuseum.org. Make sure to see the For America exhibition in person through May 16th at the Figgy, which is a COVID-safe facility. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.